we had presented to OpenAI to you know a group of, of researchers. I remember I was presenting and like half the audience was just looking at their laptops and kind of like left that meeting feeling like, oh, no one cares, you know? Then a week later, Raj calls us up and he says, hey, you know, we've got this problem on the robotics team. Like, come check this out. Can you can you help us out? And we go look and I remember going there with Sean and both Sean and I are looking at it and we're we're excited, right? Because this is like, we can solve the problem and it's it's they're telling us they have a problem, they want us to fix it. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Okay, so this episode is a fun departure from our normal format where I interview two people in the machine learning space about their work. But these two people happen to be my co-founders of Weights and Biases. Sean Lewis, our CTO, and Chris Van Pelt, our corporate vice president. And I talked to them about questions that have been stewing inside of me for years, like why did we start this company and where is it going? And honestly, I was surprised and educated by their answers. And I hope that you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed asking them these hard questions. All right, here we go. Should we just, should we just jump right in? How did this company start? And I ask this because it's the most common question I get asked if I go on any other podcast or with any candidate, everyone wants to know, how did you start the company? So I was kind of realizing you two both have founding stories. It's kind of telling the same story, but it may have diverged in its evolution. So I would be curious to hear you two's version of the story. I guess, which of you wants to go first? Sean, I think you should go first. All right. When I started my career as a software engineer, I was at Google and I I, I was in the platforms team at Google. So I joined, this is back in 2006. Um, and I worked on all kinds of stuff in the platforms team. The platforms team was responsible for building the data centers and all the machines inside the data centers that Google uses. And I wrote a lot of the software that, that ran uh, in those environments. And when you write tests like that, they generate a ton of data. Um, so I, I, at first I was writing tests, but then I ended up with just all of this data and really where I ended up spending my time was on uh, making tools and data uh, pipelines that would help us understand that data. And, and that's what I like realized that I loved doing. So I ended up writing all kinds of different tools and data pipelines. And, you know, the data is like in all these different databases all over Google. And, and I sort of merged it into one place and defined the metrics that we use to understand hard drives. And then made these like sort of user facing tools. And when I say user, I mean other people at Google. Uh, that they could use to dig in and understand this data. So I worked on a lot of stuff like that at Google. It was super fun. Um, and then I eventually left. And then I started this company called Beep. We built hardware. Um, we, we built a lot of things, and it's kind of tangential to the story, so I won't go into it. We were also in Y Combinator. And in that Y Combinator batch was uh, actually Lucas's wife, Noga, who I'm not, also not sure if folks know this, but she's, she's the founder of a company called Picnic Health. And so we were in a Y Combinator batch, we ended up sharing an office together in the mission in San Francisco um, for a couple of years. And I, I got to know Lucas that way. So, you know, we had a hard work component at Beep. We had this hardware lab and Lucas loves robots. And he was kind of always tinkering in his garage building robots. And he would come uh, up to my hardware lab and poke his head through the door and go, what are you guys doing in here? And also like my robot's broken. Uh, and we'd, be, <laughs> we'd just start to get to know each other and work on the robot and help him fix it. And so we became good friends that way. 
Um, and, you know, I guess as Beep wound down, I think, I don't know, that was like 2016. Uh, I think this is my version of the story. Chris and Lucas were sort of uh, starting to step out of figure eight around the same time. And the circumstances were really good. You know, deep learning was starting to take off. We were all really excited about it. Um, I had been thinking about these problems a lot. I really would, you know, I love the chance to work with Lucas and Chris. And we just sort of started hanging out and talking about it and jumped on that opportunity and started building the stuff that I needed to organize that data. Yeah, it was, you know, an exciting time and it still is. All right, Chris, I think you have a different different version of this story. Let's hear it. All right, so we got to go back. We got to go back to like 2006, like Sean, except in my 2006, I'm coming to San Francisco for the, the first time. And it's to work at an exciting startup. I feel like I've, I've made it. I've been doing web development and, and trying to kind of advance my career and happened to be into Ruby on Rails, which was really hot and exciting at the time. And there's this uh, startup in San Francisco that um, was using Ruby on Rails and using machine learning to create a, a smarter, hopefully more relevant search engine. So that startup was PowerSet. And I came up to San Francisco, it was like the beginning of 2007. And that's actually where I met uh, Lucas. So Lucas and I joined PowerSet at, at roughly the same time. And I was in the product team interfacing with uh, a whole bunch of the the other backend teams to try to create an interface to this uh, exciting new tool. Fast forward uh, about a year or so, and and Luke and I decided, you know, Power Set. It's been fun, but I think it's time for us to to give our own go at, at creating a Power Set or a startup. So we set out to make crowdsourcing more accessible to the enterprise and people that wanted to to do it to collect training data to train uh, machine learning models way before machine learning was as cool as it is today. Yeah, fast forward about 10 years through kind of creating a startup with Lucas, learning a lot along the way. And uh, at the time that we started Weights and Biases, kind of Luke and I's day-to-day uh, -day responsibilities at the company were, were winding down. Um, so we were asking ourselves, like, what is, what is next? I remember going to Lucas's uh, workshop where most of his uh, podcasts are recorded and playing with robots. And I was uh, like really into Lua for a little while there, thinking we can make a cool like Lua toolkit for robots. Um, but then it was really uh, Lucas having an internship at, at OpenAI and actually building models um, with you know some of the world's most renowned machine learning researchers and needing tools to help him, you know, get his job done. That was the initial kind of itch that we were scratching. So I love building tools. Luke's like, hey, I need a tool to help me build models at OpenAI. I said, great, let me try to whip something up um, and just really poured myself into making a very early prototype. And then shortly thereafter, uh, Sean came into the picture and I am forever grateful Awesome, man. Those were, uh, you know, I was getting some messages from Lavanya to pull you back, both back on the rails while you're talking. But, you know, I love the extended, extended cut founding stories. I think mine is like a sentence or two. Sorry, Lavanya, now she's texting me what the f but, you know, there's secrets here. Actually, that's a good segue into here's another question that I have for you. So, Sean, you've been out on paternity leave. Chris, you've been like talking to like lots of customers independently from me. And so people keep asking me this. They're like, what is like the architecture of the weights and biases server? 
and I try to describe it and I realize I honestly have no idea. Like I know there's like MySQL involved and React. Can you can you like give me the like several sentence like lay of the land? Like say I'm like an engineering candidate and I just want to know like what are we using? How does it all fit together? Okay. All right, we got a single page React application that is our front end. It's just a, a lot of JavaScript. We load that up into the browser and then it makes requests against our GraphQL backend, which happens to be written in Golang. When a customer uh, wants to run weights and biases themselves, we actually deliver all of this, the single page React app and the GraphQL backend API in a single Docker container that they could run within their Kubernetes cluster or in a managed um, kind of Terraform-based deployment that we support. And then the backing persistence stores are super simple. We've got MySQL and an S3 compatible object store or you know, a Zero Blob storage or, or Google Cloud storage. Yeah, There's a little Redis in there, but customers generally don't have to worry about that. It's nice because from early on, we, we knew that uh, having on-prem, the, the potential to go on-prem was really important for our customers because of data privacy concerns, because these data sets are you know, so valuable and, and have all these sort of other privacy concerns. So we, we really just kept it simple to make that possible. And, and yeah, it's, it's been, those were good early choices. Sean, you wrote a document, I think at one point, that was like what it would take to be a billion dollar business. For, for weights and biases. And I thought maybe we could uh, pull it up and um, compare it to what it actually took to be a billion dollar uh, market cap business. Looking at this document, how do you feel that things have played out? Is anything played out differently than you expected? Yeah, so, well, I guess the core of the argument was like, we're not sure if we can build better products than everybody else in this space. Um, but we can we can raise a lot of money. We know we can do that, and we can we have we we're con well connected to lots of customers because of Lucas and Chris's background with Figure Eight. Um, so it's very easy for us in the early days to kind of you know go into a customer with with very little to show. You know, we had a demo of the early parts of the product and have good conversations, and, and that's like really what it takes to develop good products is to to actually interact with customers uh, who look at the product and give you feedback on you know either a demo. Or, or by actually using the product. So the, the argument was we should, uh, we should rapidly, rapidly expand into sort of the different parts of the ML pipeline um, in parallel and leverage those connections and, and the ability to raise money. We could build a team that could sort of build products in each of these spaces. I would say we didn't quite do that. I think we're still, you know, we still have this goal of expanding across the ML pipeline. Um, and, and this early sort of theory that maybe we're not better we're not, we, we may not be great at building products. Um, I would say maybe this is maybe not so humble of a statement, but I think we, we built something that users really love. And we definitely did it uh, by hiring great engineers and great product people and by talking to these customers a ton um, and spending lots and lots of time and just having this relentless customer focus. But I also think that somehow at core, there's kind of this magic somewhere in what we're doing at WMB and that we, we do understand the space and the customers and, and we turn that, that, that money and customer connection into great products. And so, you know, back then I was thinking, well, we have great products and, and looking back now, I feel like we really do. And that's uh, really been a cool journey. All right, I have a question for, for both of you. I was kind of wondering about, was there a moment where you felt like the building, the, the business was really working or the company is really working? Like, can you think of a time when, when you really suddenly felt like that or, or not? And if so, what, what time was it? I think. 
there's a couple times, but one that really stands out for me is driving down to like Palo Alto or Mountain View or wherever we were like meeting. And one of our first deals was with uh, Toyota Research Institute. And I remember kind of sitting out, we gra- grabbed lunch with Ari, our, our kind of first uh, account executive, grab lunch. We knew we were going to go into this meeting and present the number that we were going to um, sell our software for. And I had this thought of like, this is like, this moment is, it's really important. Like it's scary when you're when you're brand new, you don't have many other customers, and you go and you say, "Hey, we want to charge this much for our software." I felt like this is make or break, and we went in. The meeting went really well, and we ended up closing uh, TRI as as one of our first customers, which was which was great. But after that, I mean, I wasn't like, "Okay, now we're set." It's like just you know, next week we can get to a, a billion dollar valuation. But it was that first customer was 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 really big yeah that was a big one i mean that's the thing as a as a founder you're or, or probably anybody at an early stage startup you're kind of there's always you do the thing you say oh if we can just do this one thing then we'll be sure that we made it and then like the next week you know you're, you're back to work and you have to you have to grow some more um and you're always looking at the next thing um but that that first customer was was a great a great one i think um, for me, what comes to mind is, I think this was maybe like around the holidays last two years ago. Um, and so, you know, the, in the earlier stages, even up to say like 15, 20 people in the company, you kind of have a pretty good sense of everything that's happening. Um, every deal I remember, you know, being a part of in some form, but there was a moment around the holidays a couple of years ago where we have these Friday meetings where uh, we get together and sort of talk about how the week went and to everybody at the company and, and somebody says something great that they did. In that particular meeting, I just remember, you know, there was like somebody on the sales team who had made another sale to a customer I'd never talked to. And somebody in the growth team that had like found a new growth experiment to do and executed it and actually like made numbers change. And somebody in the product team that had done something that, that I didn't even know they were doing. And so all of those things came together in one meeting for me. And I that's when I felt like, wow, this company's a lot more than like sort of I can't wrap my rounds, arms around it and push everything forward anymore. There's like all these great people around me that are, that are doing that. And, uh, and that is an amazing feeling because like, you know, from there you, you sort of add more and more great people and, and the company continues to go in a good direction. And uh, yeah, it's, it's like bigger than yourself. Another question I had for, for both of you is, is there like a favorite, like feature in the product that, that you feel really proud of or something that, that some way that the product works that you think um, you feel like is uniquely great? For me, it's got to be the command line interface. I think it's a very underappreciated interface to our product. Uh, in the early days, I spent an obsessive amount of time on making a whole bunch of command line commands and making it work nicely in Unix. I was like piping stuff at one point. Uh, I think we've we've since decided that's not the way most people want to interact with our product, but it's a as a nerd, as a Unix nerd, that's my favorite part for sure. I mean, there there's a lot of great parts of the product that I'm I'm proud of that that everybody at the company have built. I guess, you know, maybe something that people don't really see is there's this layer in the front end that we made, um, and so you know, in WMB you've got all these different charts on the screen, and the architecture of the front end is that each chart can individually make its own network requests to get like the data that it needs to show. And those are actually kind of heavy requests because there's like millions of data points sometimes if you've logged a lot of 
data. So you built this cool layer in the front end that kind of, uh, it's like a middleware that watches all of the requests going out and it aggregates them all together. So it has a little time delay and it says, give me all the requests that happened in the last 100 milliseconds. It does lots of cool, uh, like handwritten optimizations to figure out how to merge certain kinds of queries together um, and get all the results at once in a single request and then give that back to the user. And so a lot of users, you have no idea that's going on, but this is, you know, you have to, when you're building UIs, you really want it to be snappy and fast. And I, I hope that I'm not like shooting myself in the foot. I'm sure somebody will have a story of weights and biases not being snappy and fast. And if you do, send it my way and we'll get it fixed. Um, but, you know, there's like this massive amount of engineering effort that went into that chunk of code to, to make sure that charts with like millions of data points all on the screen at once can can be updated really quickly. I guess just so people don't think I'm only asking like kind of softball questions here, this is something that a, a couple candidates have asked me about recently. Have, have there been like product or engineering efforts that um, we would do a lot differently in, in hindsight? I mean, I've got one that isn't bad, so it's, it's not fair. When we first started the company, I wrote the backend in Python, and it was Python 2 because uh, I wanted to use Google App Engine to serve things up so I didn't have to, to do a bunch of DevOps stuff. Uh, that quickly stopped scaling, especially because we have a GraphQL backend where things need to happen in, in parallel. So our, our first engineer, Tom, actually uh, rewrote that entire backend in Golang. And when you do a big rewrite like that, like we already had TRI as a customer, uh, OpenAI was a heavy user. We had to like keep the site up while this was happening. And usually those things, those, those kinds of exercises can go sideways. You can start to take way longer than you would have anticipated or the ultimate project wouldn't have worked out. And that was an example where Tom actually got the project done ahead of time. And we're still running that, you know, pretty much the same backend code to scale up to the tens of thousands of users that we have, um, every day now. So it's, I guess, not a, a decision I would go back and say not do. I also like, now that I had a good experience doing a rewrite, I certainly wouldn't say we always do a rewrite, but um, you don't hear it often. Our choice to do the rewrite was definitely the right choice and it worked out really well. What customer feedback has surprised you the most? I guess I have an example like from early on when we started the company, which was the, the very first version of weights and biases was uh, was more of a command line tool around saving data, um, but there was a little bit of UI. And you know, Chris had built this Python library and this UI, and the UI was essentially what it did was it let you log in and give uh, like set up a place to store the data that the command line tool was saving. But it didn't do a whole lot more than that. Um, and I remember Chris added a feature that would just kind of it. It also collected the the outputs of your training runs, like the, the standard out, the logs. Um, and Chris added a feature that would look for the Keras, the specific Keras like metrics that it printed over time. And he just made a line chart of that. And you know, of course, early on in a startup, what you do is you have a demo or a, a thing that kind of works. You go to customers and you show it to them. And all the customers were like, Yeah, command line tool, okay, okay. But like, what's that like chart? And they would really focus on that chart. And the reason it's surprising to me is because these are um, programmers and data scientists and people who are really comfortable in like Matplotlib and Jupyter Notebooks. And so, you, you know, sort of a thesis you might have is, well, data scientists don't need like a tool to create a bunch of charts in their browser because their use cases are going to be so different that, and they're just comfortable doing it themselves. Um, so it's really a big surprise to me that, that that was the main thing people focused on. And so we saw that and we said, well, let's follow what users want. We did that, and uh, we kept building the UI and making it better and better. And um, you know, we were able now to have a sort of generic UI that that solves 
lots of different kinds of use cases. But it was surprising that that, that would be possible for this kind of user. That's a good founding story right there. Chris, what about you? Uh, the most uh, notable user feedback that is top of mind is uh, an early user, Hamel, at GitHub. It was like a heavy user of the tool. I remember one night Hamel wrote in and said, hey, we really want to log HTML. Um, and we were actually able to like ship that feature in that same night, which was delighting to Hamel. But Hamel was also like, he did not hold back in telling us like where we were not being excellent in the UI and was, was, you know, very honest about some, some pretty serious uh, issues with the, the system at the time. And I remember like breaking my heart as a founder, like here, I've got someone who's like engaged and excited about us, but he's like getting frustrated by using our tool. It's like the worst possible um, thing I could imagine. So, you know, the team really focused and did a lot of hard work to, to kind of redesign and re-engineer a lot of uh, kind of the problem interfaces that, that Hama was running into. And ultimately, I think it, it really helped us make a better product. So how do you think the last like four and a half years of running this kind of hyper growth startup has changed you as a person or changed your perspective on the world? Like I remember when we first started the company after Luke and I had been working at, at Crowdflower for 10 plus years. And I was just so excited to be like, have a blank canvas. It was like, oh, we can start fresh. There's like nothing legacy we need to support. It's just, uh, you know, green fields. And I tend to think of like, oh, the, like all the company stuff, the process and the management and all of the things that you need to do to make a, a company work. Historically, they didn't interest me that much. And I think something has changed, especially with this, with this company is that now I, I find those things more interesting, you know, being able to kind of step away from just hacking all the time and actually think about, okay, how do we build a culture and how do we kind of mentor and work with the team to ultimately build a better product? Uh, I think those problems are, are much more interesting for me this time around than they were when we, when we were running Crowdflower. I guess another question I had is like, what do you think's like changed around us as we've been running this company? Like, do you feel like customers are different now? Like, do, do you feel like the industry is different at all? We started the company like sort of a year or two within like when deep learning was first, when AlexNet uh, was first like trained or, or, you know, when AlexNet actually showed real results. And we really focused on deep learning. I mean, one of our first customers was OpenAI. That's well known. And they're still a great customer of ours. And we, we spent a lot of time sort of building things, you know, that were sort of tailored to OpenAI use cases. Um, and, you know, when you start a company, you, it's good to make a bet on, on what you think a growing market will be because you don't want to go into you, you can do this, but you don't necessarily want to go into a big established market and just fight with, you know, Google and, and Amazon. Um, it's better to focus maybe on something that's smaller and that they won't spend all their resources fighting you on. And then the market sort of grows to the point uh, along with you where where all of a sudden you're this billion dollar company. Um, and you can't really like, you can't just like do that. You have to get, there's some amount of luck for sure. We, we had very good timing in start of weights, starting weights and biases. Um, and that's sort of, a, that's a really cool feeling and it's really cool to ride that trend. And so in doing that, what we've seen is deep learning, like 
really took off. I mean, you know, it's, it's like applied in every vertical. Now, every company has uh, at least a few people who are building deep learning models now. And those teams are, are constantly growing. And we see that in the way that um, our contracts grow with our customers. So, you know, I, I guess we sort of bet that that would happen, but to see it actually happen and to be able to ride that trend, there's no way to really feel what exponential growth is until you're in the middle of it. And that's, that's what it feels like. I remember one moment early in the company that stands out, which was uh, we had presented to OpenAI to you know a group of, of researchers. I remember I was presenting and like half the audience was just looking at their laptops and kind of like left that meeting feeling like, oh, no one cares, you know? And then a week later, Waj calls us up and he says, hey, you know, we've got this problem on the robotics team. Like, come check this out. Can you can you help us out? And we go look, and I remember going there with Sean, and both Sean and I are looking at it, and we're we're excited, right? Because this is like we can solve the problem, and it's it's they're telling us they have a problem, they want us to fix it. And after that, Sean and I, like, we pulled in uh, like an all nighter, basically, just like cranking out the interface that they wanted, uh, and got it to them within a couple of days. And and just I remember thinking, like, how precious is this? Like relationship with OpenAI, this institution that I really, really admire, um, and also that same feeling Sean described of, of some users saying, like, hey, I have this problem, and we had the power to go back and actually fix that problem for them. Do you remember the uh, afternoon when they turned on weights and biases? That was another all-nighter. Yeah, it turns out there was some performance problems with my Python backend, if I'm recalling Well, there were correctly. a couple of things. I mean, like... We did not anticipate OpenAI's scale because, you know, we're doing the thing that you do it as a startup, which is you make an MVP. It doesn't really need to scale, but it turns out our very first customer was like one of the largest scale customers we could have. Um, so they, uh, I think, you know, we finally convinced they were the first person who integrated weights and biases into this uh, like library that they had that uh, everybody on the robotics team was using to run training code. And so as soon as they committed that to production, it started sending us a ton of traffic. Um, and the site just like immediately went down because it's like this cobbled together kind of startup website. And actually the first problem was uh, there was some like API limit that we hit on Google because of the way we were uh, making a specific request. Chris might remember what it was. Um, and there was no resolution. Like you can't just call Google and get them to immediately like change a limit for you. You actually have to wait for a support case to go through for a number of hours. And of course, like, now maybe we're a big enough um, customer of Google that we could have some influence. But back then we were just this little startup and we can't go, but it's our first customer. That's, that doesn't really sway uh, anyone over there. Um, so I don't remember how we worked either on that. Do you, do you remember? Do we just wait? We had, we had very smartly designed the uh, Python library to, to back off when things started failing. So I think, I think the, the quota resolution got resolved within the like, retry. And so that, that was like out. one problem. And then like later in that evening, of course, we're like pumped because we have all this data coming and it's open AI and it's our first customer. And some other problem cropped up. Again, I, you might remember this, but it was like, it was something where Chris and I, we were up till 5 a.m. that night and Chris was like live patching uh, like our app engine code. It was Google App Engine at the time, which is like this Python kind of auto scaling platform that's not as used as much now. And uh, I remember, yeah, we came up with a plan and we live patched the thing and I was like, is this going to work? And and like it did and the traffic started coming in clean and we could see all the data and we were so proud to have our first customer. 
Um, and then of course, like the next morning we went to talk to OpenAI and they didn't even notice the hiccup. They were like, oh yeah, cool. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but I mean, really like it was working when we went to have that conversation and, and they started looking at the, the sort of charts that we had and, and started giving us that feedback. And that's when we got into the feedback cycle. So, you know, it's important in the early days, if you have any customer at all and they have a problem, solve the problem, like stay up all night and solve their problem. Even if they don't notice it, it's worth it for you to start getting, uh, you know, that great customer feedback that you need. What were your darkest moments specifically? I mean, I think early on when it was, it was like me and, and Ari, that was the sales team. And we would, we would, this was before the pandemic. So we would like fly wherever we needed to fly to. And some might think like, oh, you get a fly to like Toronto. It's got to be great. It's not great. You like fly and then you go to some hotel and then you go to a meeting where you're just trying to get people to like engage with you and learn about the product. And there were, there were a couple months there, like very early on where I felt like we can't charge enough for the product. People don't see it as being valuable enough. It can be very demoralizing, especially when you're out there, you know, on the, the front lines of, of sales and, and trying to like educate and, and teach people about these, these concepts that are literally being like created as we're iterating on the product. I think uh, like one of a dark moment for me is we already talked about this, but uh, when we were first trying to sell to GitHub, uh, we had this user Hamel who we talked about earlier and he gave us very direct uh, feedback about like how our product sucked. And he was like, totally right. And, you know, I love, I love building this product and, and like, even now, like it's hard. I'll take it personally for sure. Um, even though I know that some of the decisions are bad or, you know, there's lots of things that could be improved when somebody calls it out, it, it definitely hurts. Um, but we really want that feedback. Like I, I, I'm happy to go through that roller coaster of, emo of emotions to make a better um, product. And, and, and really that, that feedback led weights of biases to the place it is today. Um, and so, you know, you really ha you have to be willing to accept there's lots of bad things. We want to know what they are. We made those decisions. Like it's my fault. It's Chris's fault. It's probably Lucas's fault and Lavanya's fault to some extent. Um, and, you know, but, and we can always improve stuff and, uh, you know, you take those sort of gut punches in stride and keep making it better. I have this memory. I wonder if, if this is like an accurate memory or you see it the same way, but I, I kind of remember thinking of making experiment tracking and doing an offsite where we really built something like super custom for TRI and then going there and showing them kind of like a, a beta of the experiment tracking stuff that we've built and having them basically tell us like, this isn't that interesting and that feeling bad. And then I have this memory of talking to you, Sean, and I think you were like, I don't think anyone will pay for experiment tracking. And I was kind of thinking, yeah, you're probably right. And then I remember talking to you. I, I was like, I just need to tell you that like, I need you to be more positive, which is so funny because like, I feel like actually you're like almost always the optimist. And it was funny to just like, I remember like, like at least thinking myself, what I need to communicate is I just need you to be positive. Even if it's not like rational to be positive here because like, I'm feeling like a lot of doubt myself. Is that an accurate memory? Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember that. So that was before we, we had that user, that first user who was actually using the thing and who we felt like they were getting value. And so we kept saying, what if we build this other thing? Will that get us a user? Or what if we build this other thing? We did that, you know, for a number of months. I mean, it was, it was the early stages of the startup. Um, 
And that was disheartening because we, it's like, okay, if we, we could build this other feature tomorrow and, but nobody's going to care, you know, that was kind of the mindset I was getting into. And you were like rightfully calling me out on like, well, this is the early stage of a startup. So let's like make the next thing until we have that user. Um, and I think it was like, again, it was getting that, that first, that first user who sort of broke that off. And from there it was like, you know, Hey, I just need this one little tweak. Great. We'll do it. Um, and, and it was all positive, maybe not all positive, but more positive from there. All right, Luke. So if there are, uh, other entrepreneurs listening to the podcast and, you know, wanting to build a startup that achieves a, a billion dollar valuation, what advice as a, a startup CEO would you give them? Well, I feel like the advice probably depends on who that that person is let's picture someone who, who are you thinking of here all right so it's a it's someone that looks a little like us right they're mm. they're programmers mm -hmm. they're interested in starting a company but maybe don't have a ton of experience on the business side of things but they're passionate about the product they're creating well i guess you know there's there's so much advice out there that i think is really good these days like i feel like when we were all starting our companies the first time you know, being an entrepreneur wasn't a thing and doing, you know, like what combinators put out so much good stuff. That's really, I f you forget how not obvious it is to people that you need to make something that people want. Right. And you can't emphasize that enough. Right. But I, I feel like now people kind of know that, which is fantastic. Um, and it definitely wasn't obvious to everyone when we were starting or maybe as obvious to us as it, as it should have been. But I think the thing that people don't, talk about as much as I, I think they should, or the advice that I feel like I can uniquely offer because it's worked so well for me is to pick a customer that you really love spending time with. Like, I, I feel like a lot of these ML startups, especially they, they totally start from like a technology and kind of like what's interesting to do with it. And I think that's a bad idea. Everyone kind of knows that that's like a, a bad idea, but then they sort of like, you know, work backwards from like a use case that they find interesting and that's maybe like it's an okay idea, but I think the thing that gets lost is that, at least for me, the, the the thing I do as CEO, the thing I have to do all day long is spending time with customers, spending time empathizing with customers, thinking about um, customers and bringing the customer voice into the company. And so given that that's, I think, you know, maybe the most important job as, as CEO you should pick a customer that you really like, right? Because you're going to spend so much time with them, you know, over the entire arc of your, of your company. And so I think having a specific idea of who that is and making sure you like them, I think is a really key thing. Like I remember at Crowdflower, we tried to sell into different types of customers. And so I really felt this, like I went to like, you know, CMO conferences and like, I contrast that for myself, like going to Neurips and, like just really enjoying making small talk, like enjoying all the details of things that people say. I mean, I also believe that's really powerful for the world and good for the world, but I think even more than that, just on a day-to-day, -day, you know, motivation, like the impact will sustain you over the long term, but over the, the sort of short term, I think I really appreciate that I'm working with a user base that I, I really care about and, and enjoy talking to. Lavanya's in the chat here. Uh, we're taking questions from the audience. And uh... what's the hope for weights and biases in the next five years? I feel like almost like it's like a jinx to um, to say that question. I don't even know if I have a good answer. Maybe do you guys want to try first? You know, of course, like take it sort of from a 
a product and tools standpoint. I hope that we can build interconnected tools across the ML pipeline that 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 really work well together because they share these common underlying threads or infrastructural pieces or dare I say bones, uh, which is what I like to call them internally and everybody sort of makes fun of me for. Um, but, you know, like to me, it's really important that the, the data that you collect about your model in production can be used to inform decisions that you make back in the data collection process and the training process. So many parts of the ML pipeline, it's hard to build all this stuff. Um, but if you think of like the best companies, like, you know, somebody like Google who's building ML, they've built all this, they've verticalized all of it internally and built it themselves. And they've built tools out of other tools. Um, and, you know, I, I want to be able to t- to make a platform like that outside of a giant company and give it uh, to the rest of the world and, and sort of use all the use cases that we encounter to make it better and better and more general. I think it'd be really satisfying if weights and biases becomes a core part of every ML team's infrastructure. And, and we're really known for making really high quality stuff, really useful stuff, really, really powerful stuff. I think we're on that trajectory, but I think ML is growing so much that that becomes every company when, when every company has an ML team, which it seems like we're headed to in the next five years. So I think that's the biggest thing. And it's like, you know, if you imagine the company that, that is in that position, what does it look like internally? I think we, we kind of have this today, but I mean, there's, there's folks building uh, data tools and ML tools at, at lots of companies in the world and doing a great job. And I just, I want to get all those people in the same place, people who love building these tools. And, you know, maybe there, there's folks out there who work on these tools and don't really love it and want to switch to something else. That's great too. I mean, you should move through things in your career, but I would love to be surrounded by people who really love this problem and really love the people who work on this problem as customers, um, just all together, all of us, you know, maybe not in an office in the, in the modern world anymore, but kind of distributed around working on these problems together and just building great stuff that, that users love so they can, you know, build ML models that, that make the world better. Here at Gradient Descent, since you guys are both mega fans, you know this, but you know, for, for new listeners, we always end with two questions. And the penultimate question is, what is the most or an underrated topic in machine learning? Something that you would love to work on if you weren't working on weights and biases? I want to make a, uh, like a painting robot, but it uses like an actual brush. Okay, not like uh, just a plotter or something. It's going to be very complicated. Um, that's not the big world-changing uh, answer. Maybe you were looking for, but that's what I would be really stoked to to like pour a year of my life into. I think, like a paint bot. Yeah, paint bot. That's right. Cool, cool. All right. Uh, underrated, underrated topic. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should have started that robot company. It could have been kind of a myth. You know, this question's funny because we, we touch so many of the problems in machine learning and weights and biases. Um, not all of them, but I mean, we're building tools that are used for like all the verticals, right? So, so of course, we're going to touch them. So maybe I'll, I'll sort of say something that we're not explicitly doing that I think is really important and that I feel like I am actually doing, which is uh, I think model understanding is like critical in the future. We need like deep learning models are really tricky to understand. It's like a research area. There's like you know, it's really dependent on what kind of model you're building, what techniques you might use to figure out why did my you know car make the decision that it did at a specific um, 
point in time. And so I, I think like as these models get more and more complex, it's more and more important. And I want to understand the models. I want to understand the models to, for the world to be good. And I want to understand the models because I think that gives us some understanding into the, the nature of uh, intelligence and our own sort of decision-making processes. So, you know, we're not like explicitly doing model understanding at weights and biases, but we're trying to build tools. Um, and we'll talk more about this, you know, over the next like six months, I guess, um, that, that, that head in that direction. I'm kind of tempted to answer this question, but I feel like maybe it's better as a host if I remain mysterious in terms of what I think is the most underrated topic. But I will say, I love the company that we we started, and I would not change it. Obviously, it was a really good choice to do it. But one thing that we kicked around in the early days, well, we kicked around two ideas. One, I think, is a terrible idea, which is a painting drone, which I think would be fun, but probably just a terrible idea, but still would be really fun. The second idea, which I think I would still love to do it, and I think we thought we were kind of the wrong team to do it, but actually I think we might have been a good team to do it, but the timing seems like it might have been bad, which is to build a better simulator to help um, robot companies like simulate what they're doing and then deploy into the real world. And I just think that that still kind of needs to exist. And there's different takes on it, but it doesn't seem like it's been nailed at all, especially with the kind of like physical part of it and I also think that would be a really fun company to do, although a much slower ride. But my answer to the most underrated topic in ML is still a secret. So um, the final question is, when you look at actually all of our customers trying to like deploy models successfully, what do you think their biggest pain point is? We always ask guests this who are mostly at these companies trying to do it, but looking out at everyone, Maybe we restart ourselves people already using weights and biases because the people not using weights and biases, obviously, maybe that's their biggest problem. But the people that are already using us, what is the big thing that they run into? I mean, there's like a cop-out answer, which is probably it's hiring. <laughs> <laughs> that might be accurate. Hiring? Yeah. At some point, we should collect some stats and what people say. and Maybe that'll just sort of answer yeah. it based on at least people we interview, but yeah, what are you, what are you guys saying? Uh, it, it really varies in our customers, you know, because somebody who's building a self-driving car, for example, is they're building like a hundred models in parallel and, you know, with no proof that self-driving cars could still actually exist and work on public streets. I guess we're getting very close now. Um, as opposed to somebody maybe who's got like, you know, a bunch of financial data and needs to predict credit scores. Um, and, you know, in the, in the credit score problem, you actually model understanding what I was just talking about, really, really important. You, you probably need to use something dumber than a deep learning model so that you can actually say why you made a particular um, credit prediction. So like our customers are extremely varied. I think, I hope we're solving like a lot of the problems on the model creation side of things. I think that there's a really hard problem of figuring out what models are doing in production and then taking the data from production um, and integrating it back into the model training process. And uh, yeah, I hope that we get to work on that problem too. But I, I, I bet that a lot of our customers uh, would express they have challenges there. Yeah, I'll piggyback on Sean's response and and kind of say specifically, I, I feel like CI and CD when it comes to uh, these ML pipelines, just is nowhere close to what we have in the regular software development world. Um, so I know, you know, we have a lot of exciting things in our roadmap to help with, with kind of automating all of these steps as a, a model moves through the pipeline and then 
uh, comes back to get retrained and understanding how it's performing in production. But uh, I, I personally look forward to the day that, you know, all of this can be automated in a, in a way that, you know, doesn't involve people manually running shell scripts, which is, you know, often the case today and really unfortunate. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, guys. It's been a real pleasure working with you and can't wait for many more years. You guys can't too. wait for more podcasts, Luke. Yeah, we got to get back. Your fantastic podcast host. A year from now, see where, see where we're at. If you're enjoying this interview series, the most helpful thing that you can do for us is leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. And really, we do these shows so that people will watch them. And what I really want is more people to find it. So if you leave us a review, I really appreciate it. I thought it'd be fun, um, you know, since, since it's a friendly guest, obviously, to add some like zany new um, features to this podcast. So I thought like one section would be, I'm going to name a technology and then you got to immediately say underrated or overrated. And then if you disagree, we can, we can fight it out. What do you think? Let's go. Are you ready? Okay. Reinforcement learning. Is there a middle ground? Wait, is it only under or over? <laughs> yeah, you got to decide. <laughs> I love reinforcement learning. <laughs> underrated. Yeah, I'll go with Sean. Underrated. All right, all right, all right. AutoML. Overrated. Yeah. Come on, Ooh, Sean. Tough. It's bad for business. <laughs> underrated. <laughs> Wait, I already forgot what you said, Chris. You think it's overrated? Yeah, yeah. Wait, why? Because I think it's really important that the ML practitioner is like using their own creative powers to make choices about how the model's architected. It's like uh, automation everywhere else. I, I have mixed feelings about it. Sean, you want a quick rebuttal to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm like torn on this one. There's, there, there's like two good answers, but I do think, of course, like the, the technology to train models should evolve over time and, and things should get smarter. For example, like our sweeps tool does kind of help you um, find good parameters for a model. And uh, I think our, as a company, what we, what we need to do is like, as those tools get better and better, it's sort of automatically building models. There's all kinds of other problems around model building, like getting the right data in the first place. And, um, and we need to build those. So like this space is moving so quickly. Um, and of course, AutoML will probably continue to improve, uh, but there's lots of other problems around it to, to be solved for the practitioners. All right. Well, I, I think people should leave comments for um, which they found more convincing, but definitely bonus points for the weights and biases plug in there. I like it. Um, okay, next one. The singularity. Underrated? <laughs> yep, I'm with Chris. Underrated. Whoa, whoa. Bold. All right, we'll move on. Okay, ready? Big table. Overrated. I'll go with underrated, sure. Whoa, all right. Let's, all right, Sean, maybe you go first. Uh, I think big table... You know, well, I was at Google, like as Bigtable was starting to be used. Uh, and at the time, this was, again, it's like 2006, Bigtable was really big inside of Google. It kind of enabled all of the, the technology that we had, the search and, and everything else that people were building, Gmail. Um, and it didn't exist elsewhere in the world. Uh, and and at, when I left Google, I saw the world starting to sort of copy Bigtable and it became things like NoSQL. Uh, so, I mean, it had a huge impact on the world. I think maybe today, Big Table, raw Big Table itself, maybe this is what Chris is probably alluding to, is a, is a bit of a challenge. And, and you know, maybe I'll let Chris <laughs> take it from there. 
The reason I said it, because I remember a day early in the founding of this company when we were trying to figure out where to store our metrics and you were like, big table to solve all of our problems. It's perfect for this. And it's kind of been a thorn in our side a little bit. I mean, it's, it's done its job well, but you could ask a handful of engineers that weighed some biases and I bet you most of them would gripe yeah. about big table. And I think our use case is like a little funky for yeah. the way we're yeah. using it. For like large sort of time series where you want to fetch like, you know, if few million contiguous points at a time, uh, especially in a shared big table cluster that you get from Google, there's some challenges there. Okay. Python. Underrated. Yeah, underrated. Okay. Jupyter. Underrated. underrated. Jupyter Hub. Underrated. Mm-hmm. Underrated. Great. Kubeflow. Underrated. <laughs> underrated. <laughs> all right. All right. SageMaker. Overrated. Overrated. <laughs> Interesting, man. All right. TensorFlow. Underrated. Underrated. Incredible. Wow, you guys are super aligned. Hard to get some dissent here. <laughs> yeah, we got to live up to your podcast name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess we'll get some other pairs of guests, or maybe we could ask other ones the same questions and then. I mean, do you differ from us say. in any of those, Luke? I mean, some of these technologies, I'm even kind of hazy on what they are. Like, I was thinking BigQuery, Bigtable. I was hoping I would learn what the difference is, to be honest. 